Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hey, gang. This is Season 4, Episode 28, brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Wow, that is a mouthful to say. But you may have noticed I am not Rick Lawrence. Uh, In fact, my name is Julia Samowski, and I'm a producer here for the podcast. Rick has mentioned me probably a couple of times, but this is the first official time you are hearing this wonderful voice of mine. Rick is on vacation for the next few weeks, and I'll be taking over the podcast until he gets back. And so for this week, we will be looking at one of our most popular episodes, which is titled The Dirty Little Secret About Christian Music. This episode was part of a series we did focusing on reinventing the basics of our faith and how we can get out of the rut we fall into while pursuing Jesus. This particular program in the series focused on the positive but also potentially negative impact that listening to contemporary Christian music can have on our relationship with Jesus. It has some funny moments, some vulnerable moments, but best of all, it will give you a lot to think about. So let's join Rick and our very good friend of the show, Stephanie Hilberry, as they talk about the dirty little secret about Christian music. Enjoy! So today, um, Steph joins us. Hey, everyone. There she is. And our goal will be uh, in this next month to upend the conventional wisdoms and the common practices and expected norms of our Jesus-following life. So... Today we're going to kick off with something a bit unusual. Steph and I had a fascinating conversation about this, and it started out as a, a small thing, like a tiny little seed of a conversation, and then the more we talked, the more it grew. So now it became an episode. <laughs> so this thing is a small thing, but it's actually a major influence on our life with Jesus. And like I said, it's just rarely spotlighted. Uh, it's the music we listen to. So a few things have more power to form our worldview or our belief system or our expectations in life than the music we love and listen to. And I think that's true on a variety of levels, whether we're talking about Christian music, meaning music that was created by Christians for Christians, or just music in general. This is not an overstatement to say music is a powerful discipler, because the lyrics and style of music that we listen to does have tremendous power to form the norms in our life. So let's let's start by, Steph, you and I can talk a little mm-hmm. bit about the historical role of music in our life with Jesus. And you you talked about this kind of uh, seminal time that you had in, um, between the summer and fall of your freshman and sophomore years in high school, and that there was s- some huge shifts and changes that happened in your life that also involved music at the time. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I may have mentioned this season before, but I was, uh, I think, 15 at the time. And prior to this particular summer, I had heard people talk about hearing from God. And I had heard lots about having a personal relationship with God. And I attended youth group, and I was a Christian, but I had no idea what people meant when they said this. It was just like I got the words they said, but I didn't get what they meant. And this was frustrating for me. And if you have ever been in this situation or if maybe if you're currently in this situation, you can understand it's frustrating to feel like I, I, I can't 
figure this out. I, I understand people are having a real thing that they really hear from God, but I, for some reason, am getting nothing but static. And so for reasons that I do not understand, timing I cannot explain, I hit kind of a turning point at, during this summer, and all of a sudden I was able to begin to understand what people meant when they said they heard God. And all I can say is that there was this sort of growing differentiation between my thoughts and words that I knew were coming from another source. And that summer was a time when Bible reading really opened up to me because when God is personal, the Bible becomes a lot more personable and applicable and um, interesting and inspiring. And also worship because um, though I had enjoyed singing worship songs, I like singing, um, it's difficult to connect to music when it's not directed towards someone. I think if we think about love songs, we think about how they mean a lot more when you're in love than when you've never been in love before. And so worship songs meant a lot more to me. I understood more when I felt like my relationship with God was personal and that we were having a two-way conversation. So that was a pivotal summer for me, I think, in all aspects of what we would under the umbrella of worship, and music was a component of that. Yeah, and it's interesting what you're describing to me is, is sort of the the movement from uh, a Christian life that is sort of boundaried by shoulds. I should be reading the Bible, I should be listening to Christian music, I should, uh, you know, sing my heart out in a worship song. All of those things stand outside of intimacy in the relationship. When we cross that boundary into greater intimacy, and it's really the the uh, the midwife for intimacy with Jesus is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us into this kind of intimacy, and for me, kind of like you, this stepping into this kind of intimate relationship happened, um, uh, unlike a lot of other things in my, in my life with Jesus, it happened kind of in a moment where I made a conscious decision to open myself and invite the Holy Spirit and invite greater intimacy with Jesus into my life. It was like flipping a switch. It was amazing. I went from knowing I was supposed to read the Bible to having an insatiable hunger to read the Bible. I couldn't get enough of it. And I went from, you know, not having strong opinions about the music that I listened to to having a voracious appetite for worship music at that time because it could express what was going on inside of me. I, um, so yeah, worship music wasn't then, for me, an expression of, well, I'm being a good Christian guy right now by listening to this kind of music. It was a necessity, almost, in my life that when I think about the way music has sort of threaded into the forming of who I am, after college, I uh, was uh, I became a huge fan of Michael Card, um, who, a Christian musician who really hasn't been recording for the last 15 or 20 years, but... At the time, he was one of the top contemporary Christian music artists, but he was unusual in that his songs were complex and intricate and nuanced, and his mission really was to um, introduce listeners to Jesus as he really is. It was my first exposure to someone who saw Jesus outside of the way the Church had always described him to me, and he explored themes and... uh, and personality characteristics of Jesus, I'd never heard anyone before do that. He uh, he recorded a a uh, cycle of three albums um, called uh, uh, collectively called the Life, um, 
but the first one was called Known by the Scars, the second one was called Scandalon, and the third one was called The Final Word. And especially that middle one, Scandalon, which was all songs about Jesus, I could not stop listening to that album because it was so revelatory. It so upended my, my way of seeing Jesus that Michael Card was really my first theologian in life. I didn't know it at the mm-hmm. time, but he was helping to form how I viewed God, which is what theology is. And uh, that, that music planted itself deeper in my soul than just listening to a sermon ever would have, mm-hmm. uh, because I could sing it over and over again, and I could uh, savor the insights that he was singing about, because music helps you do that. Music is a savoring kind of uh, art form. So um, really, the formation of my own theology and, and the way I see Jesus even today started with Michael Card listening to him. And then there, along the way, I had sort of made this commitment during this you know rapid season of growth in my life that I was only going to listen to Christian music. And um, that's all I did. I, I had a, a huge collection of contemporary Christian music, and that's all I listened to. But on my uh, drives to and from uh, work here at Group back in the day, 30 years ago, uh, I, I began feeling kind of this unrest and this nudge inside, um, and it all had to do with music. And one day I was listening to a popular rock station, and they and on came a song by a band I'd never heard of before. It was called Bruce Hornsby and the Range. It was a different kind of music than I'd ever heard before. And the mu- the music itself captured me, but the lyrics to the, to the song that was popular at that time, uh, it was a song called The Way It Is, um, were so brutally honest and upending that I was captured by it. I found myself really moved, but then I thought, oh, but that's not Christian music. <laughs> and I, I know it sounds ridiculous and nerdy, but I had this big wrestling match over would I listen to quote-unquote secular music? And I felt led by Jesus, this sounds funny, led by Jesus to buy that album by Bruce Hornsby in the Range, and I listened to it a lot, and I can't describe to you what a major turning point this was for me, because uh, what it signaled was I was secure enough in my relationship with Jesus that I could begin to venture out from sort of my kindergarten classroom, I guess I would call it, where all the music was safe, to music that was a little less safe, that challenged my relationship with Jesus in a new way. So that was a major uh, turning point for me as well. And then um, even later than that, 10, 15 years later, uh, when... Uh, I really began to uh, deepen in this journey of paying ridiculous attention to Jesus and living a more Jesus-centered life. That coincided with um, a mild interest in jazz music to an obsession with jazz music during that time. And I think the reason why is jazz is one of the few art forms where improvisation is part of the art form. And I was very drawn to the improvisational nature of really good jazz music, not the kind that you hear in an elevator, but old-school swing um, from old-school artists who really, uh, their their whole uh, magic was uh, in the improvisation of the band. And it really did mirror an emerging improvisational relationship with the Spirit of Jesus in my life. I think it reflected that growing kind of relationship, and it also propelled it by listening to jazz. And I still I listen to jazz on the way up, up here to our headquarters today, and it has a way of capturing what's going on inside of me in my relationship with Jesus. So all of these huge, huge things 
They seem like little things, but when I describe them, these are major uh, forming influences in my life, all tied to music. So the question then is, in what way does the music we listen to matter in our everyday relationship with Jesus? Or you could you could you could turn turn the WWJD thing around and say, what would Jesus listen to? So, Steph, when you think about your everyday relationship with Jesus, why does music matter or not matter in that? What what sort of role does it play? Is it really a sideline role? Is it a central role? What role does it play? Well, music has an amazing sticking power. So for me, often, when I am driving to work, for instance, and I actually um, I don't listen to a lot of music. I am someone who prefers the quiet and music gets on my nerves pretty easily. It um, so it'd be bad if I started playing jazz right now. <laughs> what you're saying, yeah. I wouldn't say it out loud. <laughs> I would be maybe thinking it in my head. <laughs> um, so, but what I will say is that songs that I've learned from you know middle school, junior high, youth group night have stayed with me. And a lot of times when I am working to reframe my perspective for the day, which many of you can probably relate to, um, often we get up and need some adjusting of our mindset and some chance to open up our hearts. And those are the songs that will pop into my head. And often they're Bible verses. Sometimes they're not. They're just about God. And they're the things that they have a almost a melon, what's the metronome? No. A metronome effect on my mindset. So I'll be driving to work and they'll pop into my head and it'll kind of be this tick tock, tick tock that you kind of set the rhythm of that to your thoughts and your heart. Um, so that is a, hmm. a way that music impacts me even today, even as someone who doesn't listen to a lot of music. So one of our primary, um, I, I don't want to call it a sin, it's just one of our default uh, uh, destructive tendencies that has to be addressed over and over again is that we're notorious forgetters in our life with Jesus. We forget the most basic things, and we have, as in the history of humankind, we have always forgotten the most basic things about God. And what I hear you saying is that music, in a way, helps you remember. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a way to remember the truth that is uh, very powerful because it reaches us past our head into our heart. Mm -hmm. Music is an art form that goes, that involves the head but ultimately impacts the heart, and it's it's where it's it's the heart that really grabs onto things and keeps the seeds of things planted and growing in our lives. So that's what I hear when you're when you when you're describing that. And the 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 dirty little secret I think about Christian music, for instance, is that it's almost like other things we do in our life. If we put a label on something. Um, then we just keep buying the same label because we, we have decided what that label represents, and we, and we don't really examine what we're taking in, what we're eating or drinking once we've uh, bought the label. We don't look at the nutritional content <laughs> on the back of the thing if we live by labels, and, con and contemporary Christian music is like, like that. It's a label that we've said, oh, there's healthy things in there, so I'm going to drink or eat that. And uh, actually... Christian music should be, I think, uh, examined as closely as any other kind of music, secular included, when we are taking in something, because not all Christian music is created equal. In fact, uh, um, I used to write uh, 
and every issue column in the magazine that I've edited for 30 years. The column was called Youth Ministry Minute. So I have hundreds of these columns that I've written over the last 30 years, but the one that got the most attention on a national basis was, I, and I never, I never thought that, that it would, but in retrospect, I realized why it did. It was a column called The Trojan Horse, and I thought I'd just read this column. You'll understand why, at the time, this whole thing kind of blew up. Uh, now, there's some references that are dated now, because this was like 14, 13 years ago that I wrote this, so disregard the dated references, but you'll get the gist of why this was such a big deal at the time. It's called uh, The Trojan Horse. In Homer's Iliad, the Greeks offer their sworn foes, the Trojans, a giant wooden horse, ostensibly as a peace offering. But after the unsuspecting Trojans drag the horse inside their city walls, Greek soldiers drop out of the horse's hollow belly and open the city gates to their army, which rushes through the gates and captures Troy. So we know this story very well. In fact, Trojan horse is still a term we use in our everyday lives. In the computer world, a Trojan horse is a destructive program that masquerades as a benign application. Well, I think youth ministry has its own Trojan horse, one that also promises to eradicate a terrible virus from our midst, but often operates as a destructive virus instead. Its name is contemporary Christian music. Hang with me here. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a group of parents who meet monthly to explore issues related to parenting their teenagers. They invited me to talk about strategies for engaging their kids around their cultural influences, for instance, the music they like and the TV shows and movies they watch. Much of what I offered these parents was a game plan for developing critical and biblical thinking skills in their kids. When I told these parents the Christian music their kids listen to might be a bigger threat than Eminem, who was the top hip-hop artist at the time, their jaws dropped. To them, as with most Christian parents, Christian music represents a welcome alternative to the sex-saturated, greed-motivated, disgusting mainstream music they hear spilling out under their kids' headphones. And in many cases, it is. But a lot of what's popular in today's Christian music has nothing to do with the real gospel. It's Trojan horse stuff. Eminem sings about hatred and misogyny. We all know these things are wrong, even the kids who listen to them. They're not really opening their gates to him because they'll never live their lives based on his worldview. But Christian music offers a similar template for understanding the world, and kids do open their gates to it because it's, well, Christian. Kind of. Trojan Horse Christian music teaches that Jesus will make your life a whole lot more warm, fuzzy, and workable. In fact, my local Christian radio station bills itself over and over as positive and encouraging. That's fine, except that the Christian life, as you know, isn't positive and encouraging for long stretches, nor was it ever portrayed that way in the New Testament. I told the folks at the parent meeting that one reason Christian kids still gravitate to mainstream music is that it embraces the broad range of God-created emotions, including anger. When's the last time you heard a Christian song portray the kind of anger Jesus leveled at the Pharisees, I asked them. You have to search for that kind of music on the fringes of the Christian music scene, not in its center. I think CCM veers into Trojan horse territory when it does one of three things here. First, portrays happiness as a kind of a birthright that God can bestow on those who decide to sign on to his team. So one popular Christian band sings this, We are all as happy as we make our minds up to be. I've just decided that nothing's going to take this joy from me. Say, hey, it's a good day. Even if things aren't going my way, Jesus is Lord and I'm saved, so say, hey, it's a good day. Well, there are a whole lot of kids out there who are having bad days, bad weeks, and bad years. 
Jesus prepared his disciples for those kinds of days when he said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. It's from John 15. The second way that CCM veers into this Trojan horse territory is when it communicates that God's promise of eternal life comes to those who spend their life doing good things. So not long ago, we asked more than 10,000 Christian kids a series of questions about their basic beliefs, and about four out of 10 said, quote, a good person can earn eternal salvation through good deeds. Now that commonly held belief is not only wrong, it makes the sacrifice depicted in Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ a horrific waste. Yet Christian music is still full of do-gooder theology. And then the third way CCM veers into this Trojan horse territory is when it portrays God as the great fast food intercom in the sky. We order what we want, and a guy we don't really know passes us a bag through the window. One popular Christian singer describes God as a trusted service provider. Quote, Faithful are your ways. I always feel your grace around me. Quickly will I call. Quickly will you answer my cry. Carefully will you bring everything I need in life. So, do we exist for God's pleasure, or does he exist for our pleasure? It's a crucial distinction not always made in Christian music. The bottom line is this. Teenagers and adults need to think critically and biblically about all the truths thrown their way by popular culture, including the Christian subculture. Troy learned the hard way. Not every horse is a horse, of course. So that's the column. Uh, it made a huge stir. I got a lot of angry letters and a lot of... I did hear that uh, a Christian artist who was very popular at the time, Derek Webb, somehow got his hands on this column and started reading it before his concerts. He was trying to make a statement about the status of Christian music at the time, and he was definitely trying to push the edge in the music he was recording, trying to make it more brutally realistic at the time. But Steph, as you hear what I wrote so many years ago, what's something that stuck out to you or resonated with you, or even something that you, maybe you disagreed with in what you just heard? Well, there was something that I read from an author, and forgive me, I cannot remember the name of the book or the author, um, but it reminds me of what you just talked about. And he had this phrase about worship songs where he would call, he, he labeled them Jesus is my boyfriend songs. Oh, yeah. And made a point that Christian music has really changed over the years. And I, as a female, I think Jesus is my boyfriend worship songs seem a little bit more natural to me. Um, but sometimes I look around and I think about some of the men who are there and there, some of the songs just for me, they're so boyfriendish that I wonder if that's difficult to connect in that way from lyrics that are just real ooey gooey, almost romance oriented. And he, this particular author made a comment about how hymns from the past used to be very different, like battle hymn of the Republic, for instance, which I think most of us are familiar with. Um, the songs were a not, little not more... Not really a boyfriend song. It's not a... There were <laughs> songs that were a little bit more about like being stalwart and true and marching. And and I'm not saying that one is wrong. I don't think that that's necessarily true. I mean, I think you can sing, regardless of whether you're female or male or young or old, you can sing intimately to Jesus um, with lyrics that, you know, might even make people blush and really mean it from your heart. But I just think that sometimes... We have adopted a real lovey-dovey, culturally inspired way of singing, and it it is a narrow 
way of thinking about our relationship with God and a narrow aspect of worship that I think sometimes we end up creating into our entire experience of worship, and that seems a little one-dimensional. Yeah, and just to be clear, too, when we talk about the, the Jesus is your boyfriend kind of songs, it's what what I think of when I, when I say that or hear that is, uh, I, I have a 15-year-old daughter named Emma, who's a, a, a freshman or now a sophomore in high school, and when they and her, when she and her friends talk about guys, it's not what I would call a mature perspective on a relationship. <laughs> it's it's they they talk about guys in this sort of very unrealistic <laughs> way, like like uh, th- like if if you had the right guy, he would solve all life's problems, and you know what I'm talking about mm-hmm. when you when when young girls talk about boyfriends like it's, every diary entry that i yes, wrote from exactly. about 7 years of my life it's very unfortunate that you didn't bring your diary with you today too <laughs> oh Steph. they're very very humorous that could have Someday, really maybe. it could have really helped in this moment to <laughs> undergird this but 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 the things that i just listed in my column things like uh, that when the music portrays happiness as sort of a birthright or whether when it ties God's goodness to us because we perform and do well, or when it portrays Jesus as the fast food intercom in the sky, those are all Jesus' boyfriend kinds of mm-hmm. beliefs. There's a lot of happiness gospel in contemporary worship music, and I think that that's very challenging when that music is, again, a one-dimensional aspect of faith. Not that happiness is a real thing, but a lot of us are not experiencing sunshine and rainbows every day. And there is um, a disconnection, I think, between some of the songs and the the spirit that's reflected them and then what people are actually feeling in their heart. It's a lot, it's a lot more difficult. Yeah. And and I think the latent impact of this is is like um, looking at your friend's Facebook pages. Hey, look, everyone's having Mm -hmm. a lot more fun than I am. And when you listen to some of this Christian music, you think, hey, why aren't I as happy as these songs say I should be mm-hmm. when I'm in a relationship with Jesus? I should be happier, but I'm not happier. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, it's a, I think it's an on-ramp into living a facade in your relationship with Jesus. And, and if you read the Psalms, which were mm-hmm. the first songs, you'll find this brutal reality I was just threaded through all of the Psalms. And it's so refreshing um, to have uh, the emotional breadth represented by the Psalms. And and I do think that uh, these are the songs that Jesus sang um, himself. Uh, young Jewish rabbis knew these songs. They knew the Psalms. They, they knew certain Psalms and songs were appropriate for certain occasions. And the Psalms gave them a kind of a language of lament as well as joy. So the, the bandwidth in a lot of Christian music is, like you just said, Steph, is very narrow sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that it's a narrow... It, uh, it's a narrow array of of choices. It also narrows our understanding of what the the the, the li- a life with Jesus is really like. And I think that's why I started to gravitate to some secular music because I in that season in my life, as I was growing rather rapidly with Jesus, I was hungering for more brutal reality than I was getting um, in Christian music. I needed a reality check. I think in my life, and I I just sort of knew it inside. It reminds me, uh, my, my wife has started uh, volunteering with a, a small organization that reaches out to Syrian refugees, and she's just in the early stages of kind of connecting with this ministry, and she's met with a woman who's a Syrian refugee a couple of times, and the, the, 
person who runs this organization had my wife and this Syrian refugee woman over for tea. And so my wife went to the, the, the leader's house, and uh, one of the purposes of going to the house to have this tea was the, the leader wanted the Syrian refugee woman to meet her two daughters, who they had talked about a lot. So they're there having tea, and one of those daughters, very young, um, had been coached ahead of time, you know, make sure that you try to engage with, this, with the Syrian refugee woman. So this one little girl piped up and said, um, you know, something really bad that happened is we have a really good friend whose baby just died. And the mom immediately stepped in, and really nervous, and said, oh, no, 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 we're, we're not going to tell sad stories. We're only going to tell happy stories today. Can you think of a happy story to tell? Because I don't want you to tell her that story. And my wife came home and basically told me she, was, she really loves this, the, this leader woman, and she loves this ministry, but she was really unsettled by this whole experience, and she was trying to talk it out with me. And I, what I reflected back to her is, boy, you have every reason to be upset, because that kind of mentality, we only say happy things to people who are going through pain, and this woman had lost everything, her, her home, her relatives, her, uh, her country. Um, she's been through tremendous loss, and if our prescription for somebody in that situation is to only say and sing happy things to them, it's disrespectful to their actual circumstance, and it does nothing to really help them. It's a misguided way of trying to help someone. And so I just encouraged my wife, eventually she's going to meet one-on-one with this woman going forward, and I just encouraged her, talk about anything that seems good to talk about, whether it's hard, painful, or not, because that's, that's what's respectful. And I bet you that that Syrian refugee woman is hungering for someone to name her pain as well, to enter in with her, not just try to divert her attention from her pain. So it made me think of this... Uh, I, I, when I mentioned that I, I was drawn to music outside the Christian world because it tended to embrace reality, and reality is what I really needed, I think about this uh, song by Greg Brown, who's sort of a neo-folk artist that I sort of fell in love with about 15 years ago, and he has a song called The Marriage Chant, which was so powerful and so realistically embracing both the beauty and pain of marriage that I printed out the lyrics, and I have it in a frame in our home. <laughs> So I thought I'd just, um, uh, I'm not going to sing the song, thank God, I'm just going to read you the lyrics, and, and uh, Adam will put a, a link to the song on YouTube on our podcast page, so you can go listen to Greg Brown perform this song if you want, but here are the lyrics to The Marriage Chant by Greg Brown. Now, as I, as I go through these lyrics, think about um, how marriage is portrayed both realistically and, and with a depth of beauty at the same time. Marriage is impossible. Marriage is dull. Your dance card is empty and your plate is too full. It's something no sensible person would do. I wish I was married. I wish I was married. I wish I was married to you. Marriage is unnatural. Marriage is hard. You rotate your tires. You work in the yard. You fight about nothing every hour or two. I wish I was married. I wish I was married. I wish I was married to you. Well, the children throw fits in airports and such. They projectile vomit on Aunt Ruthie at lunch. And your in-laws know just what you should do. But I wish I was married. I wish I was married. I wish I was married to you. I'd like to fix you my special broth when you're sick. I'd like to fight with you when you're being real thick. There's no end to what I would like to do. I wish I was married. I wish I was married. I wish I was married to you. 
I like the role in rock and roll. And all I know is you're the sister of my soul. And we make a circle, just we two. And I wish I was married. I wish I was married. I wish I was married to you. The sky unpredictable, mysterious the sea. Do we wish most for what never can be? It never can be, I guess that's true. But I wish I was married. I wish I was married. I wish I was married to you. Well, the grass is always greener is what they say to me. If I was your husband, maybe I'd agree. I like brown grass and vows that stay true. And I wish I was married. I wish I was married. I wish I was married to you. Now, there's just something about that song that can help embrace the reality of what I think our closest intimate relationship in life is like. And it gives us permission to be messy and yet still appreciate the beauty. Um, I think that is thick music when it can embrace us in our journey with Jesus right in that moment. It's the brutal reality we really need. Uh, that brutal reality is best uh, best captured by what I call the Stockdale Paradox, and I'm going to launch into this whole exploration of the Stockdale Paradox without Steph. She had to leave, so you're not going to hear her voice again. It's not because I put duct tape over her mouth. I just want you to know. All right, and the Stockdale Paradox is simply you have to embrace brutal realities in life while simultaneously holding on to a never-diminishing hope. Those two things have to live in tension in our life. There, there's a book called uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins, uh, one of the best-selling business authors of all time, and this Stockdale paradox is embedded in that, that book, and he learned it from Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the, he was the highest-ranking officer imprisoned in, during the Vietnam War. And this paradox is what allowed him to survive eight years of torture during Vietnam, and it was, again, I'll repeat it again, embrace the brutal reality of life while simultaneously refusing to give up on your pervading hope in life. So you, you do both things. You embrace the brutal reality while you continue to hope. And I think that is a, uh, a great tension in great music. That tension between the brutal reality and pervading hope is what draws us and reflects back to us the truth about Jesus' own heart. So um, th this is also this kind of tension in a song is what helps us to helps that song to stick and to continue to teach us past the first time we listen to it. So the marriage chant by Greg Brown continues to teach me because of the tension inherent in it. There is a brutal reality to that song that is paired with this pervasive hope. And therefore, that song continues to wheedle its way inside my heart and continues to teach me. So let's transition here in the last part of the podcast to uh, these three things that I brought up in the piece that I wrote called The Trojan Horse. The first thing is uh, that I bring out is uh, these are sort of filters for the kind of music you listen to, and filters, I think, for the way music can play a powerful role in the deepening intimacy we have with Jesus, and conversely, how Jesus can speak to us through music best, how he can wheedle his way into our heart and transform our heart. There's, there's a certain kinds of music that, will, that can help us do that, that reflect really his own personality and surprising ways of engaging people, 
music can also reflect the very personality of Jesus in that. So we're going to use these three three things that I bring up in my piece, The Trojan Horse, as sort of a filter to help you to think about uh, the kind of music you listen to and maybe even to experiment with new kinds of music that might fit these filters and maybe um, even consider stop listening to some kinds of music that don't fit these kinds of filters. So the first one that I raise is the music communicating that happiness is our birthright, that happiness is sort of the expected outcome of a life of following Jesus, that really happiness is what we deserve if we're faithful to Jesus and, and do what he tells us to do, that happiness is our just reward from that. I think this is an insidious message that can set us up for being destroyed by the enemy of God, because when happiness is not the fruit of your following of Jesus, and that surely will happen at some point along your journey, when it's not the fruit, what do you do with that then? Formula doesn't work. The math equation breaks down. So a, a couple of things to, to, to just throw on the table here. These are from John 15 and 16. It's interesting that whoever decided the, the break between chapter 15 and 16 of the Gospel of John made an interesting choice here, because I think they, they made a chapter break in the middle of a thought <laughs> that Jesus was trying to get across. So I'm going to bridge the two chapters, and just uh, what I'd like you to do is put yourself in a posture of invitation right now and receive from Jesus what he's trying to say. Put yourself in the shoes of a disciple who um, is listening to Jesus start to talk about a transition, a transition away from his ministry that you've been along with him for three years, and he's talking more and more about going away now. And he's, it seems as though he's preparing you for life after he's gone. And uh, it's troubling, and you're unsettled by it. And he's starting to talk to you in ways that he's never talked to, to you before. And here's a perfect example. Uh, it starts in John 15 and in verse 18. This is Jesus speaking to you. Hey, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they'll persecute you. And if they had just listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me also hates my father. If I hadn't done such miraculous signs among them that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, they have seen everything I did, yet they still hate me and my Father. This fulfills what is written in their scriptures. Quote, they hated me without cause. But I will send you the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. And you must also testify about me because you have been with me from the beginning of my ministry. I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they're doing a holy service for God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you'll remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you for a while longer. So here 
Jesus is describing the brutal reality. Can you hear the Stockdale paradox here, in, in even how he's describing these things to his disciples? He, the Stockdale paradox here is, here's your brutal reality. I'm not going to pull any punches. This is what it's going to be like. But there is a prevailing hope behind this. And the prevailing hope here is, in, uh, in verse 26, I'll send you the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth. He'll come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. And you must also testify about me, because you've been with me from the beginning of my ministry. So he's saying, into this brutal reality, I'm going to send you my very presence, the Spirit of Truth. And he's going to reveal to you the truth about me, and when, as you experience and taste the truth about me, it will enable you to live in the midst of your brutal reality with joy. Here he's not promising happiness. On the surface, these things that he says that are about to happen to his disciples, there's nothing happy about them, and yet there's a sense in what Jesus is saying of great hope. He's, he's calling them into hope and joy, but the joy that they're going to experience is not because their circumstantial reality is causing that joy or happiness. The joy comes from somewhere else. It comes from the very person of Jesus. It, uh, real joy does not come because of what Jesus does for us. Ultimately, real joy comes from being immersed in his very presence. That's the joy that can't be leveraged by circumstance. That's the joy that isn't dependent on circumstances changing to fulfill your joy. This is why one reason why the Apostle Paul says, I have learned to be content in any circumstance. And then he talks about the horrible negative things he's been involved in and the incredible positive things he's been involved in. He's saying, my source of joy is not circumstantial. It's not dependent on whether things are going well or not going well. My joy comes from knowing nothing but Jesus Christ. <laughs> that was his life's mission, to know nothing besides the heart of Jesus. When that's your life's mission, joy wells up in you whether or not your circumstances are producing happiness in your life. So when the music you're listening to promises a kind of a cause-effect relationship between obedience and happiness, you know it's untrue. It's actually an on-ramp into a destructive falsehood and a lie that could really unravel the basis of your relationship. If the basis of your relationship with Jesus is circumstantial happiness, then you are set up for a fall. It's just not true. Does it mean that we're not happy? No. In fact, I think the happiest people I know are the people who are closest to Jesus, no matter what their circumstances are. Um, that happiness is a fruit of joy, uh, but uh, if you're listening to music that is what I would call quid pro quo music, meaning if you do this, I'll do that music, and that I'll do that part is I'll give you happiness, you know right away it's, it's a lie. And I want to encourage you to stop listening to that kind of music. <laughs> Listen to music that has the Stockdale paradox embedded in it, brutal reality tempered by prevailing hope. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not advocating that you listen to brutal reality music. <laughs> I mean music that simply reflects the reality of our existence instead of sort of spins it and, and makes it seem happier and shinier than it really is. The second thing is, um, is this music, uh, 
especially the Christian music, perhaps, that you're listening to, in it are God's blessings tied to your goodness. So here's a couple of thoughts about this. Um, Jesus, by the way, did not check with the people that he healed to see how good they were before he healed them. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but look at any healing story that involves Jesus, and he was engaging them um, in very in a variety of ways, usually uh, introducing hardship of some kind into their life while he was healing them or freeing them from their captivity. But he was he was doing he was not doing one thing in particular. He was not checking to see how good a person they were before he moved. If you think about the a woman caught in adultery, for instance, he uh, sets about helping uh, to free this woman from her death sentence before he discovers whether she's even guilty of what she's been accused of. <laughs> he just frees her first, then engages her afterward, and says, hey, by the way, don't sin anymore. He's not really that interested in our goodness when it comes to giving to us. So there's one filter to think about, music that promises uh, eternal life or blessings because of how good you are is a lie. That's that, and it's music that should be avoided. Jesus, by the way, remember, he expressly obliterated the rich young ruler's high standard of goodness and exposed that standard for its emptiness because it was based on that young man's own inherent goodness, his performance, if you want to put it like that. So Jesus first invites him to uh, drop all the trappings of his goodness, all the things he's built up in life, all of the obvious obvious signs that he's lived a good life, he invites him to drop all those things and follow him, and the, and the young man can't. He cannot lay down his false standard for goodness, uh, and, and it's exposed for its emptiness. Or you can think about uh, what Jesus' blessings really are when you're thinking about, um, if, if I just do all the right things and I'm a good person, I deserve Jesus' blessings. Well, one thing to consider is that Jesus' blessings aren't always how we translate that word, how we define that word. Jesus' blessings are the things that will most help us grow into his likeness and move us toward our true identity and purpose. And sometimes those things make us happy, (laughs) and sometimes they don't. They often don't fit our limited definition of what blessing is. There are things in our lives that are helping us to move closer to his likeness and our true identity and purpose, but they're really hard things. They're dark, brutal reality things that are driving us to him and revealing something about us that we didn't know was there and helping to shed us from our false identity and help move us into our true identity. So, And then the third filter is, is it music where we're encouraged to live our life with Jesus as if he's a fast food intercom, meaning that we just ask for whatever the heck it is we want, for whatever reason we want it, and he delivers it to us through a window outside of relationships. So he's just a vending machine, essentially, to get what we want. So a couple of examples here uh, to think about. Now, this is a trickier one, this idea that um, if your music gives you this sense that if you just ask for the good things that you want and get them from Jesus, that that's really sort of the nature of the relationship. So Jesus, in Matthew 6 and 7 couple of places here where he's talking about prayer. He says to his disciples, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. 
Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. Pray like this. And then that's when he goes into his example of the Lord, we call the Lord's Prayer, which is essentially uh, modeling what a close relationship looks like. He's not modeling words for us to repeat. He's modeling a relational approach to uh, engaging the God we can't see about the everyday things of our life. Uh, God wants a conversational, real, authentic relationship with us where there's nothing off the table and that we decide to put everything on the table for him. Later on in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Keep on asking, and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you'll find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? So here he's saying, you can trust the heart of your Father to give you good gifts, whether or not you think of them as good gifts. <laughs> so he's saying, your Father will, a good Father would never give you a snake if you ask for a fish, so he's not, he's not going to give you something harmful that will hurt you. If you ask for one thing, he's not going to give you something that will hurt you. He will always give you a good gift. But the, the front part of this is keep on asking and you'll receive what you ask for. It's interesting that he repeats the, the phrase keep on over and over again. There's a sense of persistence about this, and, and what he's really saying is the things that you persist with me about, there's something to those things. Those persistent things, they, they sort of get uh, uh, evaluated and uh, condensed uh, the more you persist in them, you give Jesus a chance to shed those things of what doesn't really matter and get down to the core of what does really matter. So the thing that you persist in in the end is the core of the thing, whatever it is. Because you've persisted in it, Jesus sort of starts to sort of shed the unnecessary aspects of, of what you're asking him for, leaving you with the core thing. And he's saying here, you're going to find that core thing in me um, if you just keep on asking. I'll help you as you keep knocking and seeking to shed those requests from the extraneous things that don't really matter. And we'll get down to the core, and that that um, I will respond to. Or you could think of the, the uh, parable that we've talked about before on the podcast, the, the parable of the persistent friend in Luke 11, where the friend has unexpected guests come in the middle of the night, and he needs three loaves of bread, and he goes to his friend's house and knocks on his door in the middle of the night, and the master of that house says, I'm not getting up, I'm already in bed. But because that that man persists in his knocking, um, the master of the house finally does come down and gives him his three loaves of bread. And Jesus uses that story, that parable, again, to undergird this whole idea of persistence. Keep on knocking, because that the act of persistence tends to surface the core of your ask, whatever it is. So um, so here we have some tension around this whole issue of whether Jesus is a fast food intercom or not. No, he, he is not a dispenser of things outside of relationship. The aspect of getting a bag delivered to you by a, uh, you know, a person you don't know and are not in relationship with through the window is nothing like what Jesus wants. He wants all of this to be encased in the, the boundaries of a relationship. So, 
two things to think about as we close today. Why does Jesus care about the music you listen to? Why would it matter to him that about what whatever kind of music you listen to? Uh, and I think the answer for you to, to consider in your life is that there's nothing in your life that doesn't matter in your relationship with him. And music is one of the most powerful influences in human life. So of course the kind of music you listen to matters. And I'm suggesting that the music that you listen to, the hoped-for outcome would be that you'd have a closer reality, uh, closer connection to the truth and a closer connection to true hope. Um, those are the standards. I love what uh, when Bono was being interviewed uh, for a biography about him, the interviewer asked him, what kind of music do you like? And Bono, lead singer of U2, said, well, I, I like music either that's running toward God or running away from him. And the interviewer said, why is that? Uh, those two seem like radically different kinds of music. And Bono said, uh, well, the, the common denominator between them is that Jesus is at the center. Um, that's the kind of music I like. So I love that standard. <laughs> music that uh, portrays what it looks like to run from God or run to Him. Um, I, I'd have to say those are the kinds of music I love as well. So does Jesus care about the music you listen to? I think the answer is a wholehearted yes. If that's the case, then what role does music play in your deepening relationship with Him? And is the music that you listen to drawing you deeper into Him or taking you away from Him? That's an important thing to consider. The second question to leave you with is, how do you discern your way in this, apart from sort of the label choices like contemporary Christian music? That's what I did early in my uh, Christian life. If it was CCM, I listened to it. I used the label as a qualifier for the kind of music I was listening to, and then as I got deeper in my relationship with Jesus, he started to expose the fallacy of of that kind of standard continuing in my life. I think it was necessary for a season in my life, but he was trying to draw me out of that protective space. As my identity was being more centrally formed in him, he wanted to, me to expand my boundaries to music that spoke more of the truthful reality of the human experience, um, uh, and some of that reality I could not find in Christian music. So I'm sure you have lots of suggestions for Christian music that fits kind of this tone and quality. Um, I know I have tons of it that, with artists that are hard to say whether they're recording a Christian album or not. My favorite artist of all time is Patty Griffin, who's a neo-folk artist, singer-songwriter. Um, I think she's the best songwriter in the last 50 years, and that includes a lot of incredible songwriters. But uh, Patty Griffin, if you want to... Uh, check out any of her albums, especially her early ones. I think the one I love the most, I think it's called A Thousand Kisses or Ten Thousand Kisses, but um, uh, that album is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary uh, uh, tension-filled mix of brutal reality and prevailing hope, and it, and it helps my heart and my soul to soar and to understand what worship really is. So I'm sure you have your own examples, and Feel free to get on our Pigs page and invite yourself to be a pig. So we'll put a link to our Pigs page on the this episode page uh, of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. And if you haven't already asked to be a part of this uh, 
private Facebook group, which is a thriving community where we throw out questions and throw in help and encouragement for each other. Please do ask to be a part of it. And if, you, if you've listened to this episode and you'd like to post something on there about music that embraces both brutal reality and prevailing hope and give us some, some, some suggestions from your own, uh, your own playlist, so to speak, put them on there. We'd love to see them. Hey, gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, just as I just mentioned, you can find out more information, but in further detail on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. You're just going to go to our podcast section there, and you're looking for Season 3, Episode 45, and that's where you'll find the links we've mentioned. Don't forget, check out the Jesus-Centered Bible as we're heading to Christmas. Uh, go to group.com um, and search for Jesus-Centered Bible, and you'll, you'll find a whole page uh, dedicated to uh, all of our Jesus-Centered Bible resources, so it's a fantastic Christmas gift. And also check out our two new devotional resources uh, that are based on my book, Spiritual Grit, written by my friend Michael Kiefer. One of them is for adults, and one of them is for teenagers. So uh, if you're an adult and you have teenagers in your life, there, we got you covered. So just go to group.com and search for Spiritual Grit. You'll find the two devotions uh, associated with it right there as well. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play to make sure you get all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. 